Hebrews 2020, increment 93. And our prayer today will be brief. Father, afford us a vision of the heavenly city through this homily we call Hebrews. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I think the best way to get up to speed, we're pretty much starting to enter into Hebrews chapter 4 in our line upon line exegesis. I think the best way to kind of recapitulate where we've been is to simply read a working translation up to that point. So starting at Hebrews 1.1, I'm going to read what I have now as a working translation. It's my translation. I take responsibility for it from the Greek text, and then we'll take off from there. And I'm not going to give reference to the numbered references. I'm just going to read what, how it would have appeared the first three chapters of this homily called Hebrews. In many parts and in various ways long ago, God who spoke provisionally to the, pro- to the fathers and the prophets in these last days has spoken definitively to us in a son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of his invisible reality who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective, who has made purification for sins, who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when he leads his firstborn into future world, he says, Worship him, all of God's angels. And with regard to the angels, he says, He who makes his angels winds or spirits, and his ministers a fiery flame. But to the Son, he says, your throne, God, is for the age of the age, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of equity. You loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness. That is why God, your God, has anointed you instead of your companions. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. And like a cloak, you will roll them up. You'll change them like a garment. But you are the same, and your years will never come to an end. And to which of the angels did he, God, ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet? Aren't all the angels ministering spirits sent for service and support of those who are destined to inherit salvation? Chapter 2, on account of this, we ought to be much more attentive to what we have heard, lest we start drifting away. For if the word spoken by angels was firm, and every violation of it and disobedient act against it received a just penalty... 
How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Which very salvation, having begun to be articulated through the Lord, was confirmed by those who heard him, God himself testifying at the same time, both by wonders and various kinds of miracles, and by distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he willed. For you see, it is not to angels that God subjected the future world about which we are speaking. Now somewhere, someone solemnly testifies, saying, What is man or humankind that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned for him? You made him inferior to angels for a short while. You crowned him with glory and honor. You subjected all things under his feet. As things now stand, we are not yet seeing everything in subjection to him. But we see Jesus, who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, so that far from God, he would taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. For in the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, because of whom and through whom all things exist, should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. For both the sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one because of which he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing hymns to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God has given me. Consequently, since the aforementioned children have a share in blood and flesh, he also became a partaker of the same, so that through experiencing death, he would render hors de combat the one who held dominion over death, that being the slanderer, and liberate all those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. For he has surely not taken hold of the nature of angels, but he assumed the seed of Abraham, for the same reason, he was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God, to make expiation, propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered and was tempted while being tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. Chapter 3, therefore, sanctified siblings, participants in a heavenly calling, carefully consider the apostle and archpriest of our confession, what we acknowledge as ultimate reality, Jesus, who was faithful to God who appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all God's house. For he, Jesus, is considered worthy of greater glory than Moses, inasmuch as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. To be sure, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God.
Now Moses, on the one hand, was faithful as a servant in all God's house for a testimony to what would be spoken in the future. But Christ, as a son over God's house, whose house we show ourselves to be, if only we hold fast to the boldness and the boast of our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit is saying, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the embitterment that led to revolt during the days of testing in the desert, where your ancestors tested me, put me to the proof, even as they were seeing my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked by this generation and said, they're always led astray in heart, and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, that is, they will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief that withdraws from the living God. Instead, keep encouraging one another every day, as long as it's called today, in order that no one of you is hardened by the deceptiveness of sin. For the proof that we've become companions of the Christ is that we hold firmly the reality, the substance of hoped-for things until the end, until the objective of completion is reached. That is, that we hold on firmly to the reality that we had at the beginning. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as they did in the incident of embitterment that led to provocation. For who were those who heard and became embittered? Were they not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses, and by whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? We see then that they weren't able to enter in because of unbelief. Now Hebrews 4, 1 and 2, to give us tracks to run on as we advance on the line upon line. Therefore, while the promise remains to enter into his rest, let us be intensely concerned, lest any one of you think that he has come too late to enter it. For good news has also been proclaimed to us, as it was to them. But they didn't profit from the message they heard, not uniting with those who heard by faith. Please note that translation because there are many translations that are competing for attention in 4.2. But the idea here is that there are people who are united in a solidarity of faith and there are people who do not have faith. We're going to look at this a little more carefully. Now, to illustrate once again the intimate relationship of the Holy Spirit and the scriptures that pertains throughout Hebrews, it's evident that Numbers chapter 14, 
lies behind Hebrews 3, 7 to 19, and even on into 4, 1 through 11, which also carries us into the book of Joshua. It's recommended, I think, instead of me dealing with it verse by verse, I recommend that every student of Hebrews read this chapter, Numbers 14. In the 45 verses of that chapter, the Lord expresses his wrath against the sons of Israel who sinned against him by unbelief. Replying to Moses who had appealed to him to forgive this people their sin, and Moses did appeal to him, forgive this people their sin according to your great mercy, just as you were gracious to them from Egypt until the present. In response to that, the Lord said to Moses in Numbers 14, 20 through 23. That's one verse, one section I will highlight, for it's Yahweh speaking directly to Moses. He said, I am merciful according to your word, but I live, and my name is living, and I will fill up the earth with my glory. For all the men who saw my glory and the signs which I performed in Egypt and in this desert and who tested me this tenth time, now for the tenth time, he says, and did not listen to my voice, surely they will not see the land which I swore to their fathers. Now this emphasizes that an evil heart of unbelief withdraws from the living God. Notice that God said, I live and my name is living. You want to know who I am? I am living. Life, as Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. An evil heart of unbelief withdraws from the living God, says Hebrews 3.12 and alienates itself from the one whose name is life. If you look at Ephesians 4.18, you see that. The initial readers of the Hebrews homily were in danger of being intimidated by the devil who uses the leverage of the fear of death to control people. They were in danger of following an evil rationalization And Jesus says, out of the heart comes evil rationalizations, Mark 7, 21 to 22. They were in danger of following an evil rationalization in their hearts, hearts, which said, in effect, let's return to the practices we abandoned when we were first enlightened about the once and for all and forever sacrifice of Christ. Now, with the help of the theological functional specialty called history, we've learned that this would have been a real temptation for them because they could have rationalized that they could still please God while returning to the practices of Judaism in order to come under the protection of the Roman Empire. Perhaps God would see this as a sensible course of action. But God's not impressed with common sense. He has a more uncommon sense. We've also learned that there are two 40-year periods from which we can take valuable instruction. One was the 40 years in the desert in which people delivered from slavery, a people group delivered from slavery in Egypt and led by Moses, 
a great deliverer and prophet, were subsequently destroyed in the desert because of the sin of unbelief. Another was the 40 years in which the majority of the New Testament was written, between 30 and 70 A.D., also a very instructive 40-year period. And between 30 and 70 A.D., believers had a 30 A.D. remembrance, especially of the death of Jesus Christ, as well as a 70 A.D. anticipation and trajectory. The anticipation was of the judgment a historical judgment on old Jerusalem and the temple. Both of these 40-year intervals were historical times of failure by the sons of Israel to heed the voice of the Lord God of Israel. But they were also times of the existence of, quote, a different spirit, small s-p-i-r-i-t, that being a spirit of faith. In other words, in a tiny minority, there were people of faith whose human spirits were spirits of faith. Both of these historical epochs saw an escalation of sinfulness which provoked God and ultimately incurred his displeasure and wrath that resulted in historical judgments, but of course not in eternal damnation. That's never on the docket for God. Now in this Numbers 14 passage, again, well worth reading and contemplating, the Lord assures Moses of his mercy and the forgiveness of his people for the mercy that Moses appealed to him for was forgiveness. And God says, you've spoken rightly, I'm going to forgive them. Within the circle of his infinite love and forgiveness, however, he has judgments that are meant to be unto salvation, but nevertheless are historical judgments and catastrophic in many, in many ways. We should pay attention to this now in our history. He says, yes, I'm merciful, but he also said, but I also live. Now, that means something that's extraordinary, and I can only touch the surface of this revelation right now. He is the living God now. He was the living God then. He will always be the living God. And because he is merciful and because his mercy endures forever, he forgives them, even the desert generation whose corpses were strewn across the desert sands. But because his name is living, and because he lives not only above history, and this is where we're getting a little bit deep, because he lives not only above history, where he's called transcendent, but within history, where he's called imminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, he deals with protracted rebellion against his word, as it's expressed in time and in history, by individuals and by groups, even by nations. He has already acted in eternity for the restoration of all things and all beings. He enacted that in the cross of Jesus, both in eternity and in history. For the cross of Jesus Christ is an event that occurred both in eternity 
and in history. It is a certainty to be experienced by all creaturely beings in the future. But in time and within the course of history, there are expressions of God's wrath on evil generations, evil groups, evil ideologies, evil idolatries. The Lord says in effect, and I say this in effect, I don't claim to be a prophet, but if I were, I may say words something like this from the Lord. Yes, the whole earth will be filled with my glory when I make everything new, when I gather everything in my Son, the Messiah. I will do this because of my determined and unstoppable intention to comprise everything in Jesus. But I also live, and as one who lives, not only transcendently but imminently in history, I experience empathy and love, and I also experience the passions of grief and of anger. My mercy endures forever, as does my great love. My passions come and go. Nevertheless, my passions are real. My grief is real. People have grieved my spirit in this generation. Corrupt communication has done so. Corrupt minds and a coalition of them have done so. Irrational hatred stirred up by impure spirits has done so. I become angry because of unbelief because of sin and ingratitude. Therefore, I act in time and in history with historical judgments. I tell my willing slaves about this first. I am the living God, and to me, all are living. And all will live because all will be made alive in my Son. But I judge generations in time within my love. I judge nations within the circle of history. I judge in order to save. Now I'm withholding a destructive judgment on your nation because of some who have a different spirit, a spirit like Caleb's, and like Paul's, a spirit of faith which aligns with a bold and boastful hope in me and with the love of my son controlling them. If I were a prophet and were to speak for the Lord, maybe I'd say something like that. The same spirit of faith in many people the spirit of faith that we're going to look at in a moment. The same spirit of faith in many people makes a coalition of spirits united by faith and really rooted in Christ's own faithfulness. 
This is what we have in Hebrews. A coalition of spirits of faith who are honored in Hebrews 11. It is those with a spirit of faith who by faith do things like subdue kingdoms and not just visible ones. Cause enemies and even historical downtrends to retreat. Political power can't do this. God's power does this while operative and energetic through his word in people in whom there is a different spirit than the spirit of unbelief. Instead, in them there is a spirit of faith in 2 Corinthians 4.13. The spirit of faith was found in so few of the generation that came out of Egypt that only two men were commended and went into the land of promise. The land would be inherited by their families, by their descendants. But in the land was Amalek, says Numbers 14 also. Amalek and the Canaanites who would have to be defeated. The enemies which have to be defeated today are not supporters of one presidential candidate or another. They're not right or left-leaning supporters of one person or another. The Amalek and the Canaanites against whom we fight are unseen overlords, principalities and powers who have evoked unbelief and who have fomented irrational hatred, rage, and divisiveness in this country and even across the world. Even violence is rooted ultimately in unbelief. These spirits are in every sense world spirits, spirits of this age, for they dominate everyone in the world who have spirits like the disobedient people of the desert generation who were unable to handle freedom. Those who are of Amalek cannot stand and their plans are condemned and slated for utter demolition. For they're rooted in the Adamic ontology, which has been done away. The glorious hope which Yahweh spoke of to Moses, and this gives us amazing hope, deep hope, bold hope. The glorious hope which Yahweh spoke to Moses in Numbers 14, 21, that his glory will fill the earth, is also found in Psalm 72, 19 which is found in the Septuagint or the Greek translation of 71.19. It says, Blessed is his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. So be it, so be it. And in Isaiah 6.3, the heavenly creatures of fire, they're called seraphim in Isaiah 6. Hebrews 1.7 rightly calls the angels of God that are seraphim, Flames of fire. They are fiery super creatures. In Isaiah 6 3, the heavenly creatures of fire cry out incessantly, holy, 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 meaning holy with the utmost holiness is the Lord of armies. The whole earth, say these seraphim, 
is filled with his glory. So much for angelic perception. And in Isaiah 11:9, the Lord says, they will not do any harm. That means nothing can do any harm. Nor shall they at all be able to destroy on my holy mountain. Please notice that. That's holy, heavenly Mount Zion. And then he says this, and the Greek doesn't know how to handle it. The Septuagint, really, some of the lexicons didn't know how to handle this word. For the sum of all things, he says, will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as much, as much water veils the sea. He uses the word sum of all things in the Greek text of Isaiah 11.9, and it's this word, he for the article, H-E, and then the word sumpasa, S-U-M, P, make that a pi, A-S-A, sumpasa, S-U-M-P-A-S-A. And sumpasa means together and all, all together. And I think this indicates what Ephesians 1.10 calls the summation of all things in Christ. This is a prophecy of it. So Isaiah 11.9, once again, the Lord says, They will not do any harm, nor shall they at all be able to destroy on my holy mountain. For the sum of all things will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, as much water veils the sea. And then in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14, For the earth will be filled up with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as water covers them. In other words, you'll be filled, all will be filled up with the knowledge of the Lord as if the ocean covered you. And so the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is a phrase that's transplanted right into 2 Corinthians 4, 6, as we've seen many, many times. And that is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines from the face of Jesus Christ, that shines into our hearts when we see Jesus. And again, this time, and I found this almost, well, we say accidentally, we mean providentially, this in conjunction with the great king, and we've dubbed this year the year of the great king. The prophet Zechariah says this in 14.9 of Zechariah, and the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. There will be one Lord and his name, one. And still again, regarding the prophecy of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 34, which is in the Septuagint 38, 34, and also transplanted into Hebrews 8, 11 and 12, and 10, 16 and 17, 15 through 17, thereabouts. And still again, therefore, regarding the prophecy of the new covenant, they will, and they will not at all teach each one of his fellow citizens, tain politain. This refers, of course, to the ultimate heavenly city. They will not at all teach each one of his fellow citizens and each one of his siblings, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the smallest to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. Consider then 
The takeaway from Numbers 14, and there are many. You can find many more on your own, I'm sure. And that's God's assessment of Caleb in Numbers 14, 24. And the exceptions that God made of Caleb and Joshua in Numbers 14, 30. Because you who are listening to me today, I wish, I will, I want, and I think God intends for you to be among these exceptions and with these exceptions, Caleb and Joshua. Especially see Numbers 14.24, for there the Lord says that, quote, Caleb had another spirit in him, meaning another spirit than those who sinned with unbelief and who fell in the adversities of the desert. For the Lord says... And this is one to slap on your fridge someday. But as for my servant Caleb, because there was a different spirit in him and he followed me, I will lead him into the land there where he entered, meaning where he entered as a spy, and his descendants will inherit it. Caleb was one who came back and said, we can take these Amalekites. We can take these enemies. The Lord will strengthen us. By faith, we can take them. Ten of the twelve spies cowered and acted the coward. And they did not enter the land. Caleb did enter the land. He had a different spirit. The different spirit that was in Caleb is the spirit of faith. The spirit of faith in him distinguished him from those whom the Lord himself called this evil congregation. Numbers 14.35. Now when Paul spoke of the spirit of faith in 2 Corinthians 4.13, he said it this way, having the same spirit of faith. Now he doesn't say the different spirit, but the same spirit. How about a lot of people having a different spirit than that of the unbelief of their generation, but having the same spirit together, the spirit of faith. The same spirit is, in the Greek text, it says, ekontes di to auto penumates pistios. And that means the same spirit of faith. And that speaks to what we ended the year, the last year with. It, it speaks to an intersubjectivity. Paul says we have the same spirit of faith. That means he saw himself in a coalition of spirits of faith with the one who wrote Psalm 116.10, with Caleb, with Joshua, with the heroes of faith, as we like to call them in Hebrews 11. There's got to be a better name than that. Almost everybody can be called a hero today. If you color inside the lines in a coloring book, your parents might call you a hero today. So it's a, t- it's a word that's loosely used. The same spirit of faith speaks to an intersubjectivity of Paul and the psalm composer of Psalm 110, or make that 116, which is, and this can be confusing, but it's not, the Septuagint of Psalm 115.1 which begins, hallelujah, I believed, therefore I spoke. That's another word, hallelujah, that's overused, but here it's properly used. Hallelujah, praise Yahweh, 
I believed, therefore I spoke. Why does he say hallelujah first? Because it's Yahweh who evoked the faith in him, which led to the boldness that he had when he spoke, when he preached, when he taught about Jesus Christ. And so this brings us to Hebrews 4.1. Therefore, while the promise remains to enter into his rest, it didn't end in the desert generation. There's a promise that still hovers over the people of God to enter into rest. That means that the rest is not a literal inheritance of land in the Middle East. It's something else. Therefore, while the promise remains to enter into his rest, which we're going to find out includes the cessation of works, which is really the cessation of the Adamic ontology, which is really freedom. Therefore, while the promise remains to enter into his rest, let us be intensely concerned, lest any one of you think or suppose or assume or presume that he has come too late to enter it. Don't tell me it's too late for you, is what he's saying. Now, the very next verse is one which occasioned much debate among translators. And I would opt for the following translation, and I did it already earlier in the reading today. But Hebrews 4.1, for good news, that's the gospel, has also been proclaimed to us as it was to them. But they didn't profit from the message they heard, not uniting with those who heard by faith. In other words, they did not come into an intersubjectivity with the people of faith by mixing faith or by uniting their faith with the message or responding by faith to the message of Moses and to the message of the two spies that came back and said, we can take them and the Lord will give us the victory. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is my favorite English text and has been for years, they got it right. I was actually surprised to see that they got this right because this is a tough verse. They said, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. So the writer isn't saying that the desert generation under Moses did not unite with faith with the message, though that's true. Some, most translations make it look like they didn't unite their faith or mix their faith with the message they heard. But it's really they did not unite themselves with people like Caleb and people like all the heroes in Hebrews 11 who heard by faith. They didn't enter into an intersubjectivity of faith, a coalition of spirits of faith is what he's saying here. And this is an important interpretive point here. And in, in, in fact, it's a, an important interpretive turning point if we're going to understand this homily. The salient sense is that they did not become united with people of faith, people who had heard in faith. Those like Caleb, who had a spirit of faith and therefore and thereby pleased God. So here we are, we're back to the intersubjectivity of the spirit of faith, a coalition of spirits of faith in whom the Holy Spirit has evoked faith and who are continuing in faith, knowing that through much tribulation they will experience the kingdom of God in Acts 14.22. 
These are spirits which have been rectified from unbelief and who are on the way to completion, to a complete conformity with God's Son, the image of God's Son. Only those who hear by faith profit by the message that they heard, benefit by the message that they heard. The great contrast in Hebrews, therefore, is between the generation that was delivered out of Egypt to wander in the desert and who became the objects of historical judgment and those of various epochs, on the other hand, of Hebrews 11, who were of a spirit of faith which obtains a good report with God as Caleb did and as Joshua did in Numbers 14. These were men of faith, and men of women of faith in which the peak is reached with a woman named Rahab in Hebrews 11.31. Men and women of faith form an intersubjectivity of spirits, a coalition of spirits which can preserve a nation and even preserve a generation or many nations from catastrophic judgments. And so, for the readers of this homily, there was a beginning. It was called literally the early days. Tas proteron hemeras. Right after they were enlightened, it says in Hebrews 10.26, having come to the knowledge of the truth with regard to who Jesus is and his once and for all and forever self-sacrifice. This insight created a concomitant confidence, a kind of unqualified assurance and courage in them from the finished work of Christ and confidence in the faithfulness of God. It engendered in them a certitude of hope for an eschatological resolution to the problem of sin and evil. It opened the door to a livingness, a kind of living that is none other than Christ himself in them. For me living is Christ, they would say, in Philippians 1.21. The confidence that accompanied their first encounter with the reality that is Jesus was a confidence that the PT urged that they hold fast to until the completion is reached. To be a companion of Jesus, as we learned recently, is to be able to say with him, I finished the work that you gave me to do on the earth. Now, this descriptive phrase, the knowledge of the truth, perhaps it'll be something we'll take up next time, but I want to introduce it now. This descriptive phrase, the knowledge of the truth, and you'll see this in print, tain epignosin tes aletheas. The knowledge of the truth 
is deployed four times in the pastoral epistles. One thing I found in Hebrews, one thing I've discovered, is that there's a tremendous affinity of Hebrews, which ends with a mention of Timothy, incidentally, in Hebrews 13. There is an affinity of Hebrews with the pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy, but also with Titus. The knowledge of the truth. In 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul speaks to Timothy with assurance that as, quote, as he corrects his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. There it is, epignosis aletheos. Earlier in 1 Timothy 2.4, he says, God our Savior intends. Wills doesn't mean wishes there or just wants, but intends. God our Savior intends that all human beings be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Epignosin aletheos, again. So we have a connection, Hebrews 10.26, 1 Timothy 2.4, 2 Timothy 2.25. Then in 2 Timothy 3.6, he describes a class of people who are, quote, weak-willed, burdened with sins, and led along by various impulses. He goes on to say they're always studying, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Epignosis aletheos, again. Finally, Titus 1.1, Paul self-identifies as, quote, a slave of God and an emissary of Jesus Christ sent to promote faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to true piety. That's true Christian service, true Christian worship. So the knowledge of the truth is what God our Savior wills and wants, even as he wills and wants every person to be saved. It is the knowledge of the Son of God that he's talking about here. The knowledge of the truth can't be segregated from the knowledge of he who said, I am the truth, the Son of God. The truth is the truth that's embodied in him. It has incarnate meaning, for there is linguistic meaning, and there is incarnate meaning. Truth has incarnate meaning in Jesus Christ. And it has meaning in the scriptures also. It is truth with incarnate meaning in Jesus Christ. This is the knowledge, listen carefully to these principles. This is the knowledge without which God's people are being destroyed. And the truth without which they will become enslaved. In Hosea 4.1, and I am going to continue just a little bit down the line on this knowledge of the truth, the prophet announced that the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because there is no truth, he said. Aletheia, same word in the Greek text. Aletheia, there is no truth. No mercy and knowledge of God, epignosis theou, in the land. 
in Hosea 4, 6, the Lord tells his people, because you have pushed epignosis aside, knowledge aside, that means the knowledge of the Lord, because you have pushed knowledge aside, I will push you aside from performing priestly service. Wow. This is especially pertinent to Hebrews. Our effectiveness as priests is determined by our knowledge of the truth as it's embodied in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.26 deals with the problem of those who, quote, go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So in the case of the implied audience of the homily in Hebrews, this means that if they return to the sacrifices which God does not desire, animal sacrifices, Hebrews 10, 6 through 8, they will be returning to sacrifices that never could take away sins, but only serve to direct the attention to the once and for all and forever sacrifice which did take care of sins. And that's what they were, in effect, rejecting by reverting to the offering of animal sacrifices, even if it was just a show in order to save them from persecution. Oh, I don't really mean it when I get out and offer these sacrifices through the Aaronic or Levitical priests in the temple publicly. I don't really mean it. I believe in the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. Well, you're still an apostate because you're doing it to save your life, to save your own neck, as it were, because of the fear of death, which the devil holds over us. Or for the fear of persecution, or for the fear of today social shaming, or doxing, or being removed from someone's platform. Now, The sinning here is akin to the sin of those who fell dead in the desert after being delivered by God from slavery in Egypt. The desert generation cried all night, says Numbers 14, wishing to return to Egypt. They had an all-night crying fest. The PT didn't want his readers to, in effect, do the same thing. Now, if we bring in Paul's insight from Romans and Galatians, the law itself had been hijacked by sin. And to put oneself under the law again is to return to slavery to sin. The PT's homily warns against his readers putting themselves back under the system of inefficacious offerings, even if it was under the rationalization that if we do this, Rome will think we're Jews and not Christians and put us under their protection. The PT's homily warns against his readers doing such a thing. He warned them against receding into the shadows instead of boldly and confidently holding on to their confession of Jesus, the Son of God, and of his universal final efficacy of his once and for all and forever sacrifice. Now this is going to lead us again forward into Hebrews. This Hosea passage is very sobering. 
And it seems to have a warning for Christians today. In fact, I'd be bold enough to say it does have a warning for Christians today. He in Hosea 4, 1 to 6. So we may rejoice and be confident that we're saved or that we've been saved. But if we refuse the knowledge of the truth, the fuller truth that is embodied in Jesus, his universally saving efficacy, and the universal impact of his cross, which has universal impact in our own lives. That is, it universally affects us, body, soul, spirit. Then we'll cease having efficacy as priests and effective intercessors for our respective nations and for our generation. Therefore, we need a vision, for without a vision the people perish. Proverbs, Proverbs 29.18 correlates splendidly with Hosea 4.1 and 4.1 through 6. The vision that we have is afforded us in Hebrews. And I'm going to, I've recently discovered some things deep into Hebrews which are going to help us and which will afford us an apocalyptic vision. It's a seven-part vision. Each of those seven parts can constitute a message. And for parents who are wondering what to teach your children, it can constitute seven, a seven-part teaching or instruction for your children. And we'll be coming up on this, I think, maybe even on the next time together. And it will be a vision which you must and I must cherish in the years to come. There may come a time when I won't be able to do even what I'm doing now and record messages. There may be a time when we will not have a platform for it on the World Wide Web, as it's called. There may be a time when we will be misunderstood and misread and therefore shut down. And so I want you to cherish the things you're hearing now. I want you to cherish the visions that you've received from understanding the book of Revelation, Rev the book, from calling Paul, and from the book of Romans, and the understanding of justification, and most of all, the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, and his universal impact of his redemptive, reconciling, and rectifying work on the cross, and that you'll cherish the vision that God has given you of Jesus. Hopefully, we will be able to continue. But even in the event that we do not finish Hebrews in its line upon line, I'm deliberately pushing forward to capture the whole of Hebrews as we go line upon line so that you'll be able to have the treasured hope and expectation that's afforded by a vision of Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant in the heavenly city and so that you will truly allow the living God, the city of the living God, the anticipation of your being there in the living city of God 
and that you'll let this new Jerusalem enter your mind so that you will not cave in to the pressures that are coming, to the adversities that are inevitable, and so that you can pray with me even now as we close. Do not let us crack under the pressure of adversity, Father, and deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power, both now in time and within the circle of history, and forever, beyond time, beyond history, and in your transcendent existence in Christ. We thank you for this, Father, for this opportunity. And may none of our opportunities that we have taken be wasted. Recall the things we've heard, and let the Holy Spirit recall what we have heard, and sharpen our vision of Jesus so that we may see him with the anticipation that one day we will see him and be like him. Amen.